Daniel chapter 7. Why is the world so messed up? And what is God going to do about it? That's what the second half of the book of Daniel is concerned with. These two questions. Why are things so messed up? What's God going to do about it? Now, we've been working through the book of Daniel, and we just hit the midway point. We just finished the first half of the book. And you'll remember the first half of Daniel, those first six chapters, are made up of six individual stories, unique stories. Today, starting the second half of the book, we step out of story literature, and we step into vision literature. The rest of the book, chapter 7 to chapter 12, is made up of four visions that Daniel received from the Lord. Now, when it comes to the study of the book of Daniel, oftentimes the first half of the book is loved, the second half of the book is avoided. You don't get far into the second half before you have this imagery and language that's confusing and intense and sometimes frightening. And so many times we'll get to chapter 7, read a little bit, give it a hard pass and skip ahead to whatever's next. But understanding and interacting with the second half of this book is not as difficult as you might think. Uh, Think about the dominant theme that we saw over and over in the first half of the book of Daniel. That dominant theme is that God strengthens his people to endure suffering until he establishes his kingdom forever. So we saw that uh, in the fiery furnace, and we saw that at the lion's den. And every place in between, we saw God helping his people endure suffering and hardship with the promise of his restoration in his forever kingdom. Well, do you want to guess what the second half of the book of Daniel is all about? It's that very same thing, only it goes from sort of a localized scale in Babylon, and it's drawn out onto a cosmic scale. What's true about God in brief moments in Babylon or Persia is also true about God when nations go to war with angels. And so Daniel chapter 7 verse, or through chapter 12 is a really unique type of literature. And for us to really get traction quick, we need to take just a few moments this morning uh, to understand what it means to read apocalyptic literature. Chapter 7 through 12 is called apocalyptic literature. And so let me share with you a, a few details about just what apocalyptic literature is. You don't have to write these things down, but it might help you as we begin this portion of our study. So what is apocalyptic literature like? Well, it describes the conflict of this present age. It looks at the world around us and says, this is a mess, this is a problem, something is not right. And then it reveals the end of this present age. When is all of this going to stop? Surely the ragers don't rage forever. Well, there's an end to it. It describes the peace of the final age. Once God has set everything right, what's that eternal life and that eternal kingdom like? It uses complex and mysterious imagery. And then this last bullet point is the most important. It gives hope and comfort to God's people. When this was written, Daniel 7 through 12, or when the book of Revelation was written, which is also apocalyptic literature, it wasn't written just to scare the reader or confuse the reader, nor was it written to be locked away until televangelists in 2020 unlocked it and sold their books about it. It was given to God's people to give them hope and comfort in the midst of present-day suffering. So we know we've interacted with these chapters and this type of literature correctly when it fills us with hope and it gives us strength and it comforts us in our suffering and in our weakness. Now, 
you don't read apocalyptic literature the, the same way you read other types of biblical literature. There's a different set of rules involved, and the images inside this literature necessitate some specific rules. Let me show you a few rules for understanding the imagery in apocalyptic literature. And then class is over for the day. Uh, How do we interpret these images? It uses fantastic fantasy language, in fact. So the most important images are going to be interpreted in the text itself. We'll see this next week in chapter 8. Daniel has a vision, and an angel of the Lord says, this represents this, this represents this. Very specific. So in the text, oftentimes the writer will give us the most important interpretations. Some images are just known and fixed. Like, for example, here in a moment, we're going to read about beasts that come up out of the sea. Well, the sea is almost always an image of evil, darkness, sadness. When you read the end of the book of Revelation, heaven is described as a place where there is no more sea. It's not that they're just land lovers. The sea represents death, loss, mystery, terror. So that's a type of image that's fixed and known. Other images are fluid or unknown. They shift in their meaning. It depends on the story, depends on the context, or we just don't have an answer. Finally, we've got to treat these visions as a whole. When we read chapter 7, we're going to consume a lot, um, but we've got to look at it almost from 30,000 feet and not get lost in the details. There are some things we do not have answers for, some images we just don't have a connection with. And that's okay. The main point of the whole vision is not lost on us. It points us to God and hope in him. So we're going to use these rules as we study chapter 7 today. Chapter 7 has the entire scope of human history in view. From any place you stand on the timeline of humanity, Daniel chapter 7 gives us information about what the future holds. And what it described for Daniel is what it describes also for us. And the future it paints is bleak in a way. But it's not without hope. It's absolutely not without comfort. It's because the future is not uncertain. Uh, these beasts and rulers we're going to read about in chapter 7, they have a date set for their demise and their judgment by God. And the future belongs to God and his people. These are words of hope in Daniel 7. So I want to show you in this chapter today three certainties about our future. From Daniel's vantage point, it spoke about his future. It speaks about ours as well. So follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 7. It's a little long, but we're just going to take it all down in one gulp, all right? Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching suddenly, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. 
After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly, in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve him and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. There's a lot going on in Daniel chapter 7. But here we find three certainties about our future 
from this very, very ancient vision. So let me share with you these three certainties about our future. First of all, beastly nations rage over and over. What do I take away from Daniel 7? First thing, beastly nations rage over and over. Daniel's vision is of four terrifying beasts. Let's take a look at these beasts. What do they look like? Well, we're told the first beast in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 4 is like a lion with eagle's wings. And then those wings were torn off, and the lion was stood up like a man and given the mind of a man. What does all that mean? Well, on the one hand, we would say, I don't know. This is a beast that came from the sea. All four beasts came from the sea. They are evil empires. But there are some hints from earlier in the book of Daniel that might identify this particular beast. You see, the national symbol of the kingdom of Babylon is a lion with wings. And do you remember way back in chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar, for a period of time, lost his sanity and lived out in the wilderness? He was described this way in Daniel chapter 4, verse 33. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar's hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, his sanity returned to him. So his wings, so to speak, are torn off. He stood up and given his mind back, his sanity back. That could be the identity of the first beast. It could be the kingdom of Babylon. That would coincide also with Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue back in chapter 2. The second beast, verse 5, is like a bear raised up on one side. What's that mean? I just think it means it's a grotesque figure. And it has three ribs hanging out of its teeth. And then Daniel hears the voice of evil say to this beast, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. It suggests that brutality drove that regime. There's a third beast in verse 6. It looks like a leopard. It has four wings on its back, four heads. It's given dominion. Uh, With the four wings, it's saying that this regime moved swiftly. It consumed people and territories at a fast pace. And with four heads, everywhere it looked, it took what it wanted. It saw what it wanted. It moved fast. It took those things with brutality. And then we're told about the fourth beast in verses 7 and 8. And the fourth beast is like nothing we can imagine. There's no like associated with it. We're told the first beast is like a lion. The second one is like a bear. The third one is like a leopard. This one's like nothing. It is unique in its brutality and its terror. Uh, We're told three different times, in fact, that it's different from every other kingdom in verses 7, 19, and 23. And from verse 7, we can say that this beast is different in its terror. It's frightening and dreadful. It's different in its havoc. It devours and crushes and tramples. And it is different in the power it possesses. We're told it has ten horns. These horns are symbols, images of power. Later in verse 24, the angel tells us that those ten horns represent ten kings. This is a kingdom unlike any other. And then verse 8 tells us about one ruler that comes out of this kingdom, one unique ruler. Uh, It's called a little horn. And this little horn uh, is obviously a mighty and dominant ruler, and he combines intelligence. We're told he has the eyes of a man 
in arrogance. He has a mouth that speaks great things. When you combine intelligence and arrogance, you always get bad news, always. When you combine ignorance and arrogance, you always get bad news as well. But this little horn has a particularly sick fascination with terrorizing God's people. In verse 21, he wages war specifically against the holy ones, against God's people. And he's successful for a time. We're told he prevailed in his exploits for a period of time. Verse 25 tells us that he forbids worship and he oppresses God's people in a very serious way. And so when we get through all of these beasts, all the descriptions from verses 1 through 8 and then to the later part of the chapter and the angel's interpretation, how do we identify them? Who are the four different kingdoms? Scholars debate this. They have apparently nothing better to do with their time. And here's what they'll say. It, it could be a number of things. It could be Babylon. could be Medea, Persia, a combination of Medea and Persia could be Greece, could be Rome, could be a combina- or some, some new kingdom, an evil empire that we've not yet seen on planet Earth. It's so, usually some sort of combination of those different options when it comes to identifying these four different beasts. Uh, now, as for the identification of the little horn, he's normally identified as a ruler in history, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, We're going to talk more about him next week. His brutality is on greater display in chapter 8. So what's the big takeaway? Four beasts, all of them terrible, increasing in their terror. They cover a broad span of history. What Daniel sees in this vision covers a few hundred years. What's the takeaway for us? Well, the takeaway is this. In these beasts, we see a realistic depiction of life in this world. Isn't it interesting that the writer doesn't give us the concrete identities of these beasts, but the writer's not consumed with you interpreting the details, knowing them specifically, but rather he seems to be teaching us about the overall pattern of history. I mean, yes, the different beasts and the little horn, they are specific rulers in history and time, but we have seen through human history many little horns, many beasts who devoured God's people, who devoured nations. This was not a one-and-done type of occurrence, but rather what we see in Daniel 7 is a repeated pattern throughout history. Nations devour nations. Nations devour people. They crush, they conquer, they take. And we're not past that in 2020. The headlines to come that we can't imagine are terrors we couldn't dream up. And for all of our technological advancement, in all of our advocating, in all of our conversing, we still have nation against nation, people destroyed, injustices galore, inflicted this very day on people around this planet. And that's been the pattern of history. In 1932, Joseph Stalin implemented Uh, a policy in Ukraine that took food from farmers and six million people died of starvation as a result. It's a beastly nation. From 1975 to 1979, over three million Cambodians were killed by the Pol Pot regime. The beast devoured. In 2003... 
in the country of Sudan, the non-Arab population rose up against their oppressive government. And the government responded by government-sanctioned ethnic cleansing. Over 300,000 civilians, boys and girls, men and women, were murdered by their own government. And this is saying nothing of the scourge of ISIS and Boko Haram in Nigeria and northern Africa and Kim Jong-un's regime in North Korea. We have always had beasts. Now, this prophecy may not keep us from pain, but it will keep us from panic. When we as God's people see the headlines and we see what nations do and we see what rulers do and see what armies do and we recognize the beasts are still here. This is not over yet. We're not going to panic. We're not going to question, is God good? Is he present? Is he attentive? Is he real? We know because we've seen what Daniel saw and we've experienced more than what Daniel did. We know that these beasts are coming and we won't be surprised. We won't panic. We won't fear. We know there's an end to these monsters and they will not rage forever. When we look to our future, Daniel 7 tells us beasts rage over and over There's a second picture of our future given in chapter 7 also. And it's that the Ancient of Days delivers. We start with eight verses of just horror. And then we get to verse 9 and there is a dramatic shift in tone. We go from the terror of the beasts to the triumph of the king. And in verse 9, we're given this scene. It's a courtroom scene. Thrones are set up in the courtroom. Court's in session, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. It is no small detail that the Ancient of Days takes a seat. As the beasts rage, God enters the scene, and he sits down. Not as a spectator, but notice he doesn't come in frantic, panicked. What am I going to do? The Ancient of Days takes a seat in all of his might and majesty and power. He is in full control. He is the judge over these beasts. We're given this incredible description of him in verses 9 and 10. It's so special. Throughout the Bible, whenever God is mentioned, more often than not, we're not given a lot of details about what he looks like. There's something that obscures his picture, his image. Think about Moses whenever God passes by Moses sees his glory hiding in a rock, and he just sees God from the back, just a small glimpse. Even Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the throne room of heaven is swallowed up in this holy smoke, so to speak. But here, Daniel is given a vivid description, and God's suffering people are given a vivid description of what God is like. We're told that he has white clothing. That's telling us that he's holy. And he has white hair. He's telling us that God is ultimately wise. And he sits on a flaming throne shaped like a chariot with blazing wheels of fire. That speaks to his might, his power. And there's a river of fire flowing out from his presence. He is angry at the state of affairs. And thousands upon thousands serve him. Ten thousand upon ten thousands stand before him. He is majestic and worshipped like no one else. This is a judge with the purity to choose right, 
with the wisdom to know right from wrong, with the power to implement his sentence, with the compassion to act on behalf of his hurting people. And what happened when God took his throne? Look at verse 11 with me. Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. This little horn who is seemingly invincible, who inflicted such damage and brought such terror, is killed, destroyed, and burned in the span of seven Hebrew words. It's the might of God on display. The destruction of the little horn and all the little horns to come is certain. The wicked do not ultimately prosper. The righteous are not forever beaten down. The victory is the Lord's. And if God is gracious enough, compassionate enough, powerful enough to throw down beastly rulers, don't you think he's capable of delivering you through every other challenge you face? Our world is full of beasts of various types. Some of them are diseases, and some of them are mental health issues. Some of them are all kinds of struggles we face in our lives, loss and grief and sorrow and uncertainty and struggles upon struggles. They are hellish and they are terrifying, but we will not live in their world forever. Too often, we think our problems are so big and our God is so small. But what does Daniel's vision teach us? But that God knows a future we don't, and his victory is complete, it's total. It doesn't hang in the balance now. As the events of our world unfold, God's future doesn't go back and forth between victory and not victory. It's already settled. It's already won. The end has been decided. God's victorious even this day. Daniel got this vision hundreds of years before it was fulfilled. And Daniel is long dead by the time the little horn gets on the scene. But when Daniel sees the vision on this day, that little horn is already defeated, already killed, destroyed, burned, God victorious on his throne, sharing his victory with his holy ones, his people. The Ancient of Days is your deliverer. No matter how scary the beasts are, you belong to a God who is greater, more powerful, and more holy, 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 and more compassionate than you can imagine. And he does not leave you to the beast. He does not leave you to the hurt and the anguish. He has for you a future in his kingdom, a life with him forever and ever. The Ancient of Days is your deliverer. The beast's rage, the Ancient of Days delivers one last glimpse into our future, and it's this. The Son of Man reigns. The beast rage, the Ancient of Days delivers. The Son of Man reigns. In verses 13 and 14, we're told about one who shows up on the scene who is like a Son of Man. I, I want you to look at those verses with me real quick. Verse 13, Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, 
and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So we can state two things with confidence about this one who is like a son of man. First of all, he's human. That's what it means to say he looks like a son of man. He, he doesn't look like a beast. He looks like a human. He is human. Second thing we can say with confidence about this one who is like a son of man, not only is he human, he's also divine. And this is mind-blowing for Daniel and I think for us as well. How do we know that this Son of Man is a divine figure? Well, he travels like God travels. He comes with the clouds of heaven. And he's served by people of every nation and language. He has an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. Those are the same things said of God way back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. God's kingdom is the one that is established forever and ever, and it belongs to this one, this one like a son of man. How is it that someone can be human and divine at the same time? Well, that issue was ultimately unresolved for Daniel in his lifetime, but you and I know something that Daniel does not. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself was as the son of man. And it's the perfect title for Jesus because it combines his humanity and his unparalleled glory as God himself. In his ministry, we see his human side in so many different ways. I mean, first of all, he's born, and he has to answer to his parents, and he has to use doors, and he rides on donkeys, and he has to eat food and drink water, and he he gets body odor, and uh, he, he he lives as a human among humans. Uh, He eats with prostitutes and tax collectors. He blesses children. He he does all the things in his humanity that a human would do. And then ultimately, he is arrested and he is beaten and he is hung on a cross and he dies and he's buried in a tomb. But in his ministry, his divinity is on display as well. Because Jesus taught with unmatched authority and he forgave people their sins. Only God does that. And he spoke of possessing a kingdom. He alone, God alone, has the everlasting kingdom. And then three days after he died, he rose from the dead. Only God does that. Jesus is the Son of Man. And this wasn't an easy lesson for his disciples to learn. They had to learn that salvation doesn't come through a military leader with an army and a sword and the wealth of nations, but rather salvation comes through the advent of a baby born in a manger who grew up to wear a crown of thorns and to carry a cross. The Son of Man didn't come to be served as someone might take away from Daniel chapter 7, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His victory ultimately is our victory as well. Daniel chapter 7 gives us a glimpse of what the end of all things will be like for God's people. The victory of the Son of Man is the victory of his holy ones. Verse 27 says, The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, to the people of the Most High. You share. You are an heir with him. And we go from defeat to dominion from being crushed to having a kingdom, from ridicule to reigning, the Son of Man changes everything for his people. Here's Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel chapter 7, we see monstrous men 
destroyed by a powerful God who reigns forever and ever with his people. Now, the challenge for us as we study Daniel 7 is to not get caught up in identifying the specifics of the beasts. But rather, I think the challenge for us is to ask this question. When I stand before the judgment seat of God, will I share the fate of the beasts or will I share the song of the saved? When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of God's wrath and promises that everyone who turns to him and trusts in him will be forgiven and saved forever. And so if God is my judge and the Son of Man is my Savior, then let the world do its worst. Ultimately, the world has no power to hurt me. And I know that after this world is, has done its worst, God will welcome me into his very best. The Lord has a glorious inheritance saved up for you, reserved for you, along with all of the saints. It's a kingdom that is yours by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And there is a day coming when all the beasts will be gone and only the saints will remain. And until then, brother and sister, fix your eyes on Jesus so that when you feel the beasts breathing down your neck, your faith doesn't fail. You remember these words from the Apostle Paul who said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. you, O ancient of days, who sits on a throne of blazing fire, and out of your compassion for your children, acts in judgment on the beasts of this world, we give you praise and glory and majesty and honor forever and ever. There is no God like you. And we are tired by the raging of the beasts. And we know our strength comes only from you. Father God, strengthen your children this morning. Let Daniel 7 give us hope and comfort as we look to the hurt around us, the hurt we're walking through this day, and we cling to this vision. We put our faith in this truth that you do not fail your people and that your judgment is righteous and true. Lord, give us strength to endure. And I pray for my friends in here whose lives have been upended by beasts in such a way that they don't walk with you. They've believed the lie of the enemy, that you're at fault or you're invisible or you're make-believe. Oh, dear God, rescue them this day. Open their eyes that they would turn in faith to one like the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of glory and who is coming again one day to take his children home. We long for that day. Let it give us strength now as we look ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.